Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. It's Wednesday, March 7th, 2018. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Bovey. Today, in the second part of our program, we will be talking to Troy Guy, an Aggie, a nuclear engineer, and on the cover of his book, he describes himself as yet another evangelical Protestant who was led to the apostolic church by a journey through the biblical and historical evidence. And it's an excellent book, and we'll talk to him about it. I want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn Bryan College Station, and also welcome our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco, and our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. Before we get started on uh, the programming part of this a couple of announcements Um, we're in the season of Lent in case you haven't noticed and that means we have penance services to prepare us for Easter and I'm going to mention a few of them I'm sure that you have access to these either on our wonderful website and um, we have all the bulletins from the parishes or you can uh, look at them in the bulletins of your parish but I'm going to mention a few of them so that you can note them down and make an effort to attend. Uh, there is one this evening, March 7th at 7 p.m. at St. Thomas Aquinas here in College Station. On March 13th at 6.30 p.m. at St. Mary in Mejia, both in English and in Spanish. And March 15th, 7 p.m. at St. Jerome in Waco, Hewitt. It's in English. And on March 15th, also at 7 p.m. in St. Mary's in West, and that's in English and Spanish. On March 19th, St. Martin in Tours is having theirs, and theirs is in English. And March 20th at 7 p.m., St. Mary in Hearn is having theirs. Also on March 20th at 6 p.m. in St. Louis in Waco, theirs is also offered in English and in Spanish. And on March 22nd at 10 a.m., St. Anthony and St. Joseph's here in Bryan is having their penance service at Christ the Good Shepherd Chapel. And they also have one at 6 p.m. on the 22nd, also at Christ the Good Shepherd. And St. Joseph in Waco is also having one at 7 p.m. on March 22nd. And then the last one for us here in the Bryan College Station area is March 23rd at 7 p.m. at Santa Teresa. And um, also on the 22nd, St. Joseph's in Waco has theirs also at 7 p.m. One of the things that we're always focusing on during Lent is conversion. And this is one of the reasons why the church calls us to an emphasis on penance, prayer, and almsgiving, and fasting and abstinence. 
But one of the issues that we have in our culture is a lack of a sense that we've done anything wrong. And so we usually have people that think there's no reason for me to confession because I go to confession because I really didn't do anything. And I think that is a poor perspective for us to have as Christians. Jesus constantly reminds us that we're not perfect and that we should always seek to acknowledge our faults, even if they're minor. And I think one of the beautiful gifts that the sacrament of reconciliation gives us is the ability to remind ourselves that we're not perfect, that we've done something wrong. I've talked to lots of people who tell me that, well, there's no reason for me to confession, go to confession because the things that I do, I repeat over and over again, and they're really not that important. And I think we're missing the boat if we have that mindset because the whole point of confession is to remind us that there are still things that we need to work on. And even if we repeat them, it's a reminder that even St. Paul prayed for God to take his issue away from him. And God said no. So the thought may be that perhaps if we aren't over the problem that we're dealing with, maybe it's because we still need to work on it. But working on it means that we don't just say it's no longer a problem and we're not going to talk about it, but rather that we do continue to face it and talk about it and take it to confession. The other part about confession that I find so wonderful is if you receive the counseling from the priest, you may find something that will help you work on overcoming whatever issue you're dealing with which you yourself may not think of. So the wonderful gift of confession is the ability for us to acknowledge our shortcomings, especially as we approach Easter, and to remind ourselves that even the minor ones are worth working on because the only way we're going to get to heaven is if we're saints, and we're not going to be saints if we're still dealing with the same issues that we carry forward. So... Take the opportunity to um, go to the reconciliation services and uh, prepare your hearts for the wonderful season of Easter that we're preparing for. One of the other things that we do during Lent that I consider so wonderful is parishes have Stations of the Cross. And if you've never been to one, you're missing something. Stations of the Cross is an opportunity for us to walk with Jesus and with his blessed mother on the path leading to Golgotha. And a lot of the parishes have opportunities for us to participate in the Stations of the Cross, and there's various uh, ones that you can use um, Alphonse Liguri has uh, Stations of the Cross. Uh, there are Stations of the Cross for children that a lot of the parishes use. And my favorite, the Reverend Fulton J. Sheen, has the Way of the Cross, which is a beautiful rendition, which we use fairly often at St. Anthony's. And um, St. Anthony here in Bryan has theirs at Fridays at 6 um, 
p.m., which follows the 5.30 p.m. Mass, and it's followed by a meatless meal in our parish center. And on March 23rd, we're going to have a fish fry after the Stations of the Cross. St. Louis and Waco also has Stations of the Cross on Fridays at 6 p.m., and uh, St. Mary's in Caldwell also offers theirs on Fridays. At 6.30 p.m., they have them in English, and 7 p.m., they have them in Spanish. And St. Thomas Aquinas offers theirs Fridays at 6 p.m., and they have a fish fry at 6.30 following the Stations of the Cross. Morning, Thaddeus. I uh, wanted to say hello to you, too, also. Hey, good morning, Deacon Mike. Thanks for saying hi. How are you doing this morning? I am doing fine. How has this season of Lent been treating you? Well, I got a chance to uh, go to confession at St. Anthony's last weekend and took my two children who have made their first confession now, came along with me, and... Father Joseph is a wonderful confessor. The folks at St. Anthony's are, are lucky to have him. Not to uh, slight or disparage any of the other priests in town, but uh, I was—I haven't gone to confession with Father Joseph very often, and uh, just I, I walked out of there feeling um, God's mercy. So I just offer my own personal experience as an encouragement, for whatever it's worth, for for people who might be listening to to do go and and. Take an extra advantage of, of um, the sacrament of confession during this season of Lent because I think it really does help put you on the path to preparing for Easter Matthew, in a profound way. Yes, Matthew Kelly does a wonderful job of explaining why frequent confession is of a benefit and he compares it to taking your car to a car wash. <laughs> yeah, I've heard him talk about it that way. Yeah, that's true. I think also recently in, in recent years, I've uh, tried to work on stating, just stating my sins and, and how often they've occurred and not turning it into a therapy session, which is really not what it's intended for. But in some ways doing that, uh, just the, the bare bones approach, I think has actually helped me um, be more aware of the the transcendent nature of the experiment uh, experience. Can you talk a little bit about why that, why that is, or what that factor in, in confession? Is? Well, I think sometimes we confuse confession with counseling. And uh, I'm a firm believer that um, everyone benefits from spiritual direction from someone that they can talk to about their faith journey but I think that's not the purpose of confession. Confession is an acknowledgement of our sinfulness, mm -hmm. a recognition there are things in our life that we can improve upon. And so offering the confessor, the priest, a short list of those things that we do struggle with and allow him the opportunity to weigh in on how we best overcome some of the issues, and this is the wonderful thing about frequent confession, we never know what the priest may focus on, 
what he pinpoints and you know it may have something to do with the sound of our voice with mm-hmm. how we state it how mm-hmm. we hesitate before we state it mm-hmm. but they'll pick up on you know what it is that we're struggling with mm-hmm. and it provides them an opportunity to briefly give us some food for thought mm-hmm. something that we can work on mm-hmm. but i still believe that the most wonderful moment of going to reconciliation is the absolution at the oh, end. Certainly. To hear the words that Jesus tells us that whatever we have done is now in the past. Mm-hmm. And um, forgiveness, which was one of the focuses of yesterday's readings, mm-hmm. that notion that we should forgive the same way we are forgiven, is a stark reminder that even when we go to confession, that we need to be aware of the times that we have failed to be the people that Christ calls us to be with our friends, with our loved ones, with our co-workers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so both the bare bones confession and the acknowledgement that we are not who we are yet called mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. I think it's also helped me to... Um to, to simply see that uh, when you st- once you step into the confessional, whatever you whatever you confess, um, it doesn't it doesn't matter what it is, it's going to be you're going to receive absolution for that. There's no there's no distinction between um, venial and mortal sins once you give them to the priest and you, you give them to Christ and and you ask for forgiveness for them. It's it's forgiven. Yes, and Jesus tells us that they are forgotten. Mm-hmm. They're thrown in the background, and um, we start afresh. And this is not to say that you know we may not let them go, because so often no, we are the ones holding ourselves back from feeling that absolution. Yeah, but we are always given the opportunity to do so if we can give ourselves a chance yeah. to start over rather than harping on the things that we have already received forgiveness for. Yep. So Red Sea Catholic Radio is just in, here uh, encouraging everyone who's listening to go to go to confession more frequently than maybe you do normally during the remainder of Lent and unburden yourself of those sins give them to Christ. And also like you were saying at the kind of the top, be more aware of our sinfulness and that we are in need of a savior. And I think the point isn't that we beat ourselves up. No. The point is that we recognize our shortcomings and recognize that we are not always able to overcome things on our own. And I think, again, this is one of the reasons why sometimes we do continue to struggle with things, not so much that God doesn't want to take them away, but because we need to recognize that others are struggling also. And if we're so complacent with our sin, we may fail to understand the struggles of others. Dennis, you're joining us. How are you? Yeah, you you mentioned recognize our shortcomings, and so I entered the building. It's, it's kind of like the old Laverne and Shirley, the, the the Squiggy and Lenny moment when they say something negative and they go, hello, and they just kind of pop in. You say, recognize your shortcomings, and here I am. 
<laughs> so I wanted to get a, a, a change gears just a little bit, if that's okay, for all of our w- listeners in the Central Texas area and those of uh, of you here in the Bryan College Station area that would like to come see Patrick Madrid. We have him coming to our second annual KYAR benefit dinner there in Central Texas for Red Sea Catholic Radio. He's coming to speak on April 19th. It's yeah. just a Thursday night, just around the corner. And we are right. filling up that hall. There is a limited space in the Sacred Heart Catholic Church Hall. And we are over halfway filled on that capacity, which is really incredible for six weeks out. Um, so that leads me to believe that if you want a ticket, you better get it soon, folks. So if you're listening, especially uh, this uh, next Saturday, too, uh, we're having some technical issues at the moment in Waco and aren't connected. But if you're listening to our Encore or one of our podcasts, we want you to sign up for the Red Sea Catholic Radio Benefit Dinner in Central Texas. If you go to our website at redsearadio.org and you click on Patrick's uh, big mustache, his face there. (laughs) He always talks about his bushy mustache every morning. So, um, and, uh, you know, he's going to come and present a course on Eucharistic miracles. And it's going to be a theme of Eucharist is Thanksgiving. And so we thank God for all of our listeners in all of our areas of broadcast. And we want those in the central Texas area and those that are coming to the benefit dinner there to know that we are thankful for them. And I've been to several of the Red Sea benefit dinners in the past, and they keep getting better and better. They're a lot of fun. And they really are. And and people sometimes get kind of, oh, another benefit dinner, you know, but they come to ours and they are very excited about fresh new content, a fresh new speaker. It doesn't hurt that we have, uh, you know, some beer and some wine there as well. So it's it livens everyone's spirits. And it, it's just a good time to talk about all the great things that are going on in the church, uh, and in, in particular, what's going on that is great through Red Sea Catholic Radio. And I think this is a reminder that, especially in our culture, we tend to see everything of equal value, that we see, you know, options, I can do this, so I can do that, I can do this or that, but they're not all equal. There are things that we can do with our time that are spiritually uplifting. There are things that improve us as Christians, and there are things that turn us away from being a Christian. Yeah. And so when we make these decisions of what should I or should I not do? What should I or should I not participate in? It's always a good thing to remind ourselves that there are positive things that we can be doing, and there's negative things that we can be doing. Indeed, indeed. And I would consider the uh, benefit dinner one of the positive things, wouldn't you? I definitely would also. (laughs) I think that's where you were leading. That is exactly where I was leading. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So if you can sign up at our website, redcradio.org, and if you go to our uh, page, it's forward slash benefit, and the tables are uh, starting at 500 for a sponsorship, or if you can't afford that, $25 for a ticket is, is a great thing. Let me tell you, you're getting a great meal and wonderful, wonderful company and great food, uh, wine and beer, and just a great company to talk about such a, a great experience as Red Sea Catholic Radio has provided there in Central Texas. And if you can't afford to buy an entire table, just think of all the new people you get to meet by just buying a single ticket. Indeed. 
you get to meet people that you haven't met before. Yeah, indeed. So we have about 30 seconds left before the break. So thank you for letting me jump in on your, your parade here and looking forward to the second half of the interview. All right, and that takes us to our break. As I mentioned, our guest will be Troy Guy, an Aggie nuclear engineer and an, what he calls an evangelical Catholic. We will see you on the other side of the break. And welcome back to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Uh, in a moment, we're going to talk to our guest, Troy Guy. I want to welcome our Waco listeners. Uh, KYAR, we had some technical difficulties, but you should be back on the air. And uh, welcome to the program. And want to remind everyone, if you do have a question um, that you would like uh, answered, uh, we are, do have our studio number, 85LOVE-RED-C, 855-683-7332. Well, we, I want to welcome our guest, who's an Aggie and a nuclear engineer and the author of Evangelical Catholic, A Journey Through the Biblical Historical Evidence That Led Yet Another Evangelical Protestant to the Apostolic Church. Good morning, Troy. Good morning, Deacon Mike. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you? Doing fantastic here in Houston. Doing great. And um, before we talk about the book... Can you give us a little background on your professional uh, history and, and tell us about your family? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, well, God has blessed uh, my wife and I, Lisa, with four uh, uh, gifts from God. We, uh, we have two girls and, and two boys at home. And uh, like I said, we, we live here in Houston. And I'm a, a graduate of uh, Texas A&M. I uh, absolutely love Texas A&M, in fact, and home of so many uh, of my professors and friends that, that I maintain very close contact with to this day. And Really, that's true for, for so many universities here in Texas, but in particular, Texas A&M is where my home and heart is. So, And now I work at uh, a, a commercial aerospace industry uh, as a nuclear engineer here in uh, Houston. And um, how long have you been working in that field? Since about 2000, so about 18 years, uh, started off working in nuclear reactors uh, and classified Department of Defense, Department of Energy uh, work for the, for the government. And I slowly transitioned from nuclear work into satellites uh, for uh, deep space and uh, low Earth orbit uh, applications. Sounds interesting. What uh, well, was... Well, I keep, keep busy. <laughs> I can imagine. What was your religious background uh, as a child and then as an adult and when you met your wife was there a difference in uh, religion or how did that work? Well growing up my uh, parents gave me the wonderful opportunity to attend church I, I wouldn't say I was a Christian but I, I was just kind of uh, going to church and, and, and playing the game uh, I, I, actually, I actually didn't have any animosity towards church but uh, my parents took me to a Baptist church, which was the uh, church really of our of our, our grandparents, my grandparents. And uh, I, in, in 1989, I like to say um, I had a born again experience, is what us Protestants would have called it, and where I became a, a, a Christian. 
And so I ended up being a uh, Baptist Christian for the next 25 years. And uh, my wife uh, was also a, a Christian when I met her, uh, more of the Assembly of God or, or more of the charismatic um, flavor. So we were both Protestants, uh, both doing well and both involved in a lot of outreach ministry. Um, and so, so that went great. Um, but I was very comfortable where I was at and loved the, the fellowship where we were a big part of the community. And I'd have to say um, that the, I'm very grateful uh, for, for excellent Protestant pastors that, that I worked for, worked with. And so I want to make it clear that my conversion story is really a praise for what they've done in my life. Uh, but the fullness of truth that I discovered in the Catholic Church uh, is, is where Christ has led me. And I think this can be said for a lot of people that have the conversion journey that you had, that the biblical background of their Protestant faith is a vital piece of their journey towards Catholicism. It's first getting to know the Bible, which sometimes our Protestant brothers and sisters do a much better job of than we do. Yes, I, I found the same thing. Uh, you know, we have uh, many, many Bible studies. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, you know, children's activities, things that, that maybe we can learn from the Protestant, our Protestant brothers and sisters. And, in fact, I've carried a lot of that into the fullness of truth in the Catholic Church. And, um, but, you know, you know at, at the same time, uh, as a Protestant, most of us strongly believe that the Catholic Church taught this false gospel. You know, there's always those Catholics across the street. You know, we don't know much about them in detail, but, but what we do know, you know, is that they don't use the Bible, they worship Mary, they pray to dead saints, uh, they try to earn their salvation, they follow man-made traditions, and they even worship this thing called the Eucharist, which is just kind of a piece of bread. You know, they bow down to this piece of bread. And in fact, Deacon, it was, uh, it was so bad, really, in the fundamentalist part of Protestantism that we had no problem calling out the Catholic Church as the great church or the great whore of Babylon, and that the Pope was the Antichrist. And in fact, my grandparents has even made that claim in the past. So, so ever becoming a Catholic was completely off the table for me. So given that background, what was the turning point to have you even considered Catholicism? Well, I have to quote Archbishop Fulton Sheen here. You know, he, he, he said that there are not over 100 people in the United States who hate the Roman Catholic Church. He, he said that there are millions, however, who hate what they wrongly believe to be the Catholic Church. And I think that is precisely what happened to me. So uh, I had a turning point in a really unexpected place. It's pretty ironic. Um, our Baptist Church, like I mentioned before, had tons of Bible studies. So we decided one evening that we were going to do a Bible study on the ancient church, the early New Testament church. I mean, the goal was simple. You know, we would get together, we would study the elements of the early church and, and apply whatever we learned to our own church, our own Protestant church. And as part of what we studied, we looked into the Nicene Creed. And it's those four marks of the church that Jesus established in Matthew 16, 18, uh, which begin uh, my wheels turning. And those are that they called out the authentic church to be one holy Catholic and apostolic. And when we started studying those four defining marks, a lot of questions began coming up for me personally. And you know, just as a quick example, one of those I like to say is, could I honestly claim that Protestantism, my church, my Baptist church where I come from, is one church. 
And if you recall, you know, Jesus established one church in Matthew 16, 18. He, he prayed for the unity of Christians in, in John 17. And that unity that Jesus prayed for in, in that church actually reflected the very Trinity himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, that, that united truth. And so I had to begin asking, was, was Protestantism one in any way? And when you dig into that just a little bit, you find out that there are over 30,000 different Protestant denominations, each claiming the truth. And so it, it began to be very apparent that, that something was wrong. What would you say was the most surprising thing that you learned about the Catholic Church in that struggle, um, especially given what you thought you knew about it? Well, I think that those characteristics, to begin with, one holy Catholic and apostolic, was extremely surprising. Um, you know, the, the Catholic Church can demonstrate this unbroken line of apostolic succession directly back to St. Peter and therefore Christ himself. And so when you start to see how connected the Catholic Church is in its apostolic origin, its teaching, its structure, you see that it's, it's a divine establishment, not a human establishment, but a divine establishment from God. And, and that really hits home when, when you consider, and certainly when I consider, that the best my Baptist church could claim or even demonstrate was a direct line back to a man in the 17th century. So a question came up is, well, what happened before the 17th century? Uh, my, my good friend that was sitting next to me, you know, he could trace the Methodist church back to a, a man in the 18th century. But what was before the 18th century? And, you know, same thing with Calvary Chapel. I like to use that example, more of a modern church that, you know, they were go back to the 20th century, which is not very far. So, and that's, that's true for every Protestant church. So you really have to ask yourself, as I did, what happened before the Protestant Reformation in 1517? And you quickly find out that the Catholic Church has been there all along. There was an interesting video out of a Catholic priest asking Alexa about the origins of the different Christian denominations, and it yes. came out sort of the same thing you were just saying, that, you know, when you get to who started the Catholic Church, Alexa, I'm assuming quoting Wikipedia, but whatever it was, the only answer logically it can make is Jesus Christ started the church, and that was not the case with all the other questions, because you can trace them to one individual who said, you know, I believe this and the church teaches this, so we're going this way. So yeah, that, That's absolutely a great exercise to do. I was just chatting with, it's funny to bring that up, I, I was chatting with a Protestant uh, brother in Christ here a couple of days ago, and I asked him that very thing, and he said, well, uh, my Alexa must have been low on batteries that day, so, you know. <laughs> yep. Um, let's talk about your book a little bit. Uh, one, give us a brief overview of what the emphasis in the book is, what direction you took with it, and why you decided to write it in the first place. Well, I wrote Evangelical Catholic uh, to present uh, the concrete biblical and historical evidence that led me to the Apostolic Church. And I think that's important because as anti-Catholic Baptist as I was, and I think many are, not, not all, but many, uh, it's important to, to continue to share our, our testimony as we grow in the fullness of truth. And so the first reason I, I wrote the book is to help remove obstacles that you know, our separated brothers and sisters faced on their journey home to the Catholic faith or the Catholic Church. And 
like I said in um, Archbishop uh, Sheen's quote, you know, some Protestants are adamantly anti-Catholic, but then there's some Protestants that simply don't understand what the Catholic Church really teaches. So I wanted to help remove some of those obstacles. And I'd say the second reason is that I wanted to help strengthen fellow Catholics. And, uh, and, and that is by discovering our faith more deeply, you know, knowing what, we, what the church teaches, why our church teaches what it does, and be able to defend that faith in a secular, uh, kind of anti-Catholic culture in some places. And I'd say the third reason I wrote in, uh, Evangelical Catholic is out of inspiration of, of Pope John Paul's call to proclaim Christ. If you recall, he said, no believer in Christ, no institution of the church can avoid the supreme duty to proclaim Christ to all people. And so I really wrote it for those three audiences. One of the things that I enjoyed about your book is, for me, my, I would say, turning point, I was always a cradle Catholic, but inactive. And the turning point was that there was an intellectual basis for what we believe, not that we that is the primary reason we believe things, but I can make sense out of the things I believe if I understand what the church truly teaches. And what I enjoyed about your book is the effort to emphasize that this is not something that, you know, just someone invented somewhere along the line or disagreed with, but that there is a progression there that is logical, that is reasonable. Would you agree with that? Absolutely would agree with that, and to, to support that even further, uh, it was also, by the way, a, a decisive point in my own conversion when I discovered these people that we call the early church fathers, and I realized just how Catholic they were. Uh, if, you, if you look at Clement of Rome, around 100 AD, he talks about uh, apostles and apostolic succession. If you look at Ignatius of Antioch, you know, about 10 years later, you know, he's off talking about this thing called apostolic authority and these bishops. And, and then you, you move along and you, you see in history the serial of Jerusalem talks about Peter's apostolic primacy. And, and the main one is the Holy Eucharist. Uh, and then Ambrose of Milan, it's another very important one, uh, talks about the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And you could go on, but you know, people like Augustine of Hippo and John of Damascus, um, they defended the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist with, with their very life. You know, it was uh, something that people died for and uh, very much Catholic. And so you really can't read the, the early church fathers without noticing how far away from Protestantism the early Christian church was. I mean, these, these guys had bishops. They, they believed in apostolic succession. They, uh, they accepted Peter's primacy. They honored Mary as the mother of God. They believed in the real presence of Christ, like I mentioned before. In other words, what, I, what I'm trying to say is the early church in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th centuries was thoroughly Catholic. And if you're a Protestant looking at that, it really puts you on the horns of a, of a very serious dilemma. One of the things that you talk about in your book that you found the Protestant denominations to be pastor-centric, while the apostolic Christianity is mostly Eucharistic-centric. How would you explain this? Well, Protestantism uh, is highly centered on the pastor. 
uh, often it's the music, it's the powerful sermon of the pastor, it's the, the good sermon, uh, it's the service, you know, if the service is this powerfully preached thing and uh, it's motivating, entertaining, the music is good. Now, certainly this is not a, a, a you know, painting all of them with the same brush, but this is my experience that I would go home and say, wow, what a powerful service. He really brought the Word of God that day. And, and sometimes that's true. I mean, I, I don't want to take that away from him, but the bottom line is that the Lord's Supper, you know, the Holy Eucharist, it was never the focus. And if it was offered, for example, it was only optional or, or at best infrequent. And most importantly, Protestantism uh, and, and our Baptist saw the Lord's Supper as only a symbol. It was no more than a symbol. Uh, so basically, the Christ-centered altar of the early church has been replaced by a pastor-centric pulpit in Protestantism. But it's just the opposite. When you look at the Catholic Church, where the Holy Eucharist, we like to say, is the source and summit of our faith. I mean, Jesus, his holy presence is the center of worship in the Catholic Church. And it's the focus of the divine liturgy to lead you into the encounter with God through receiving Christ in the Holy Eucharist. And that's called the real presence of Christ. So they're a little bit different. One's pastor-centric, and I like to say one's Eucharistic-centric. And I think this is one of the things that I have always noticed is the notion of worship. Catholics have a very defined understanding of why we should be in Mass to worship God. And we do so in the Liturgy of the Word. We do so in the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Whereas... While we're learning about Scripture in a good sermon, the worship of God to me has always struck me as not being as visible as you would think it would be given the instructions in the Scripture. Yes, and, and everything in the Catholic Mass, the, the great divine liturgy, is meant to bring you into that relationship with Christ and with Him through the, uh, the Holy Eucharist. Speaking of which, what did you learn about how the church fathers saw the Eucharist? Was that surprising to you? That really surprised me. I can think of oh, people like John Chrysostom, uh, you know, where he, uh, he he goes on and on about the Holy Eucharist and, and about how this is the center of his faith. And most of all, my sake name, uh, Saint Ignatius of, of Antioch, uh, I can quote him as saying, "They abstained from the Eucharist and prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh." of our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as a Protestant, when I read that, I said, okay, well, that, that's good for St. Ignatius, but, but, get, but give me another one, you know, give me a couple more here. So I found St. Irenaeus of Lyons, same thing. You know, he talks about is no, that this, this common bread is no longer, you know, common, but it's the very Eucharist consisting of realities, both heavenly and, you know, divine and earthly. Um, so I continued, St. You know, Justin Martyr, uh, he, he says, for not as common bread, uh, do we drink uh, or receive these? They are the flesh and blood of the incarnated Jesus Christ. So you, you go back in the early church and you see again how thoroughly Catholic uh, the early church fathers were. I just want to remind our listeners, we're talking to Troy Guy, the author of Evangelical Catholic, A Journey Through the Biblical and Historical Evidence That Led Yet Another Evangelical Protestant to the Apostolic Church. Uh, where can our listeners purchase your book? The best place.
place uh, to purchase uh, Evangelical Catholic is our website, and it's discoverhischurch.com, discoverhischurch.com. And I would encourage our listeners to purchase the book. I found it to be extremely uh, informative and refreshing, especially the uh, perspective you have um, on the Church Fathers and your own journey and uh, how important it was as you went through that journey towards the Catholic Church of your experience and uh, getting to know the one holy Catholic and apostolic church the way you didn't realize it really was. One other question I had for you is, um, as a Protestant, in your life there was a lot of emphasis on the notion of sola scriptura. How did that perspective change the more you learned about the church fathers? Well, there was a great dilemma that we faced in our in our Protestant faith, and that's that can be captured in a simple example. Um, you know, suppose Protestant minister A, you know, claims to be led by the Holy Spirit and follow the Bible alone, and then you have Protestant minister B claims to be led by the Holy Spirit and also follow the Bible alone. And if you apply that to something like baptism. Right. Baptism, you know, some, some Protestant denominations say you can baptize infants. Others say that, no, nope, it has to be an adult profession of faith, and we only baptize confessing adults. Well, which one of those, both being uh, led by the, the Holy Spirit and supposedly by the Bible alone, would we say is following Scripture alone? So you have, a, you have a problem right off the bat, and I recognize that as a Protestant, but I, I try to get around that by saying, well, the, our differences are minor, you know, and really they're not, they're not that big a deal. You know, we can kind of, and that's how a lot of Protestants get around it. You know, essentials we agree, non-essentials we have charity, that kind of thing. But the Bible alone, this idea that, uh, you know, that the Bible alone is the sole rule of faith and authority. You know, if something's not written in the Bible, it's excluded from having divine authority in the life of the Christian. Really runs into to trouble when you start reading the Bible itself. And that's the, that's the ironic part about that is that all you have to ask is, is there any biblical evidence showing that, that Jesus even intended to, for his disciples or apostles to even write books? You know, there's not a shred of evidence for that. You know, you don't see that. And you ask another question. Did, did Jesus ever instruct his disciples to generate written accounts? In other words, did Jesus ever say, go write books? You don't see it. Uh, did Jesus uh, command, you know, his disciples to distribute these books as the primary method of spreading the gospel? And you don't see that. So, you know, where in the Bible do you find that something must first be written before it can be believed? And you don't, of course. So the early church didn't follow Bible alone. The Bible alone doesn't teach it alone. And you, I think you have to realize, too, that, that as a Protestant, I would always say, well, the, you know, the Bible is where the church fell out of. Of course we know that. But, but that's actually not true. The, the church existed prior to the New Testament. And, and you can see that in Acts of the Apostles and so many other places. But really what, what hit home for me, Deacon, was that I, I, ran, I ran across two verses that I didn't, I, I didn't see as a Protestant, and that was, according to the Bible, you know, what is the pillar and foundation of truth? And in 1 Timothy 3, 
we see that the church is the living of the living God is the very pillar and foundation of truth. And as a Protestant, I have to tell you, I didn't know what to do with that verse. And the second one was that it was in Ephesians chapter 3 where we asked the question, how is the wisdom of God made known? And you read there that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. So, you know, you, you have two really, really powerful verses backing up that Sola Scriptura uh, is, not, is not our primary rule, but, but the church is what the, where the church, the Bible fell out of. And I think for me that quotation, the church being the pillar of truth, has always been for me the foundation that supports our faith in Scripture. Because without that pillar of truth telling us this is the Bible, we really have no knowledge of what books should be contained there. Yes, and I think it's also interesting that, you know, Jesus said, go and make disciples. You know, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And, and back in Luke, you know, he says, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. So, so we see that the, the uh, disciples were sent out with authority, you know, with power from God and this authority that he breathed on them. And it, there was no books at the time. Uh, so, yeah, and, and if you look at the, the fruits of Sola Scriptura, you know, with over 30,000 Protestant denominations, each claiming that they are the true ones following the Bible alone, it's really a fruit that, that is really questionable. Which brings us to the other uh, Protestant staple of faith alone. What was your journey away from that like? So faith alone was the, one of the toughest ones. You know, we are saved by grace in, in, in Christ, and, and we're saved uh, not as a result of any works, uh, you know, in our initial salvation. Uh, I always saw that the Catholic Church taught a works-based uh, salvation. In other words, if I just go to Mass, if I just do X, Y, Z, then, then, you know, somehow I'll be saved. You know, if I confess my sins to a priest, if I do, you know, without having a relationship with Christ. But, but we're called to, to, to have that faith in Christ. But if you have authentic faith, you will have authentic works. And those works, along with Christ, now they're not in addition to Christ, but they're coupled with Christ's one-time salvation for us, are salvic. And so that's the big difference that I had to learn, that so many Protestants, and I think this is true of most Protestants, certainly was for me, that, hey, I've, can, you know, I, I've accepted my Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't have to do anything else. You know, I, I don't. You know, I don't have to uh, be a good neighbor. I don't have to love my enemy. I don't have to feed the poor, clothe the naked. I, I can ignore all of that and still claim that I am a born again Christian. But the Catholic Church, you know, if you if you had one minute to live, and, and then somebody said, "Hey, how do I be saved?" Well, we'd say, "Believe upon Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved." But at the same time. If, if you give me 10 minutes, I'm going to tell you about the church he established. You see, if you love Jesus, you'll love his church as well. And one other thing going along that line is the notion of the body of Christ being the hands and feet of Jesus. Is that something that you learned as a Protestant or more of a realization as you became Catholic? I think I always had that notion, and I think many Protestants probably have that. Uh, but but the, the difference in how we see the body of Christ kind of comes out when you consider the communion of the saints. And in brief, the communion of saints, um, 
uh, well, well, praying for one another, you know, intercessory prayer uh, was common in, in Protestantism. You know, hey, you call me up, I'll pray for you, you pray for me, I'll pray. So the body of Christ, if you will, was only earthly. Where as Catholics, we have a much larger body of Christ. It's, it's not only us here on earth, purgatory, heaven. It's the one body of Christ that's not separated based on your, your, your location. It's based on the truth of you belonging to Christ and, and, and his church. And so, yes, I, I, had a, I had a notion of the body of Christ being the hands and the feet, but not the totality of the body of Christ. Which brings up a thought and a question for me, because as a cradle Catholic, the notion of the communion of saints has always underpinned my understanding of Jesus being, um, well, God being a God of the living, and that we're all uh, alive in heaven if we um, cooperate with our salvation. But from a Protestant perspective, coming into that notion of the community of saints, did you find it challenging at first to pray for saints' intercession? Or once you realized what the church was teaching, did it come pretty natural? Well, as a, as a Protestant, I thought that the communion of saints, uh, frankly, was, 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 was a Satan. Um, the, and the idea that you would pray to a dead saint uh, was not a biblical uh, truth, that it couldn't be found in the church fathers. But what I've quickly found out is that, that all of that is based on an incorrect understanding of what communion of the saints really is. And, and, and communion of the saints is, is not a relationship between this living and the dead. It's a relationship between the living and the living. And you can see that in, 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 the, in the transfiguration. You know, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and they observed who? You know, it was Elijah and Moses, and they weren't dead. They were talking to Jesus. And those old covenant saints who died long, long ago were not dead. They were very much in communion with Christ and Peter, James, and John. So this idea of communion of the saints uh, started to make a lot of sense as a Catholic. Now, how did your conversion influence your family? It, initially, uh, it was a bit of a shock. Uh, I had been studying the Catholic Church for about 15 years, and uh, they knew that I was uh, anti-Catholic for know, seven to ten of those years. But secretly, I, I continued to read and study and ask the question, mainly what was before 1517, as we started this conversation with. And when I rolled that out to the family, uh, what I found out is that they had some similar questions as I did. Well, okay, we're, we're Baptists, but, but really, what did come before that? And if Jesus established his church, you know, in, in Matthew, and he, he promised that the gates of hell would never prevail against his church— then what happened for 1,517 years? Did, did Christ and the Holy Spirit just abandon us until Martin Luther came on the scene? And so it, it generated great discussion and, and uh, uh, fellowship, really, uh, around the dinner table. And uh, we ended up having seven uh, people enter the, the, the church uh, when I did. I think that's a wonderful example of how... Families influence each other and contribute to our spiritual growth. 
because when one explores something by definition, the others at least are exposed to it. And uh, I think that's a wonderful example of how all of us can minister to each other in our families. Would you agree? I would, I would wholeheartedly agree, Deacon, and I would say that could be extended to our ministry outside of our domestic church, you know, our family. Uh, recently, uh, I've been interacting with a group of Protestant pastors, uh, many, many actually, and uh, even in their churches, I found that if you're gentle, you know, you, you go about it in a loving way, uh, that you realize that you're not there to beat them over the head with a Bible or a sling Bible verses. Or, uh, but if you have a, a true heart uh, for bringing others into the fullness of the truth, uh, that, that, that just sharing your witness and, and what God has done for you uh, and the truth he showed you and the fullness of truth, that that, that goes a long, long ways. We're nearing the end of the interview, so what I wanted to talk about a little bit before we close is, again, your um, ministry. Um, and, uh, again, how do people learn more about your ministry? And, again, talk where they can access your book and what your ministry is trying to accomplish. Well, the best place to learn about our ministry and uh, the book Evangelical Catholic is to go to discoverhischurch.com. It's also available on Amazon, but we were able to get them a little bit cheaper, so I'd recommend the discoverhischurch.com. You could also follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Catholic Troy. And I would also say if you're in the Houston area, uh, April the 24th, I'm giving a talk at St. Paul the Apostle Catholic Church. Uh, why be Catholic when there are thousands of evangelical Protestant denominations to choose from? So everybody's welcome to come. So um, do you spend a lot of time speaking to groups, and do you enjoy that? I do enjoy that. I think that true dialogue is best done face-to-face and with friendship and uh, getting to know people, know their struggles, uh, and realize that, that people are at different places in their faith journey. And we're not there to judge. We're there to help them along and point them to Christ as we've been pointed to Christ. And if someone's interested in uh, having you come to their community to speak, they can do that through the website also? Correct. Discoverhischurch.com, and there's a place that you can fill out. And you can also contact me just via email. You know, just contact us, and uh, I'll be happy to respond and either answer questions, uh, get a book out to you, or be very happy to come and speak. Again, thank you very much for being on the program. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, your perspective on and this is uh, much similar to mine, and uh, I encourage all our listeners to uh, take advantage of the opportunity to read your book. And um, again, it's Evangelical Catholic and by Troy Guy. And um, if you don't mind hanging on the line after we uh, close the program, I would appreciate it. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be our host for the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when calculating the many ways you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up.